<coughs> we pray. Lord, sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth. Uh, guard us and build us up and strengthen us in our study of your truth this morning. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. And sisters, in Jesus, the referee is the only person in the whole stadium who knows exactly when the final whistle will blow. All your sports have a great big clock that's ticking down to zero. When it gets to zero, everyone knows the game is over. Everyone in the stadium is on the same page. There is absolutely no doubt. Basketball, in particular, has a really loud, obnoxious buzzer that goes off as soon as it hits zero. So there's absolutely no doubt in the whole place when the time is up. But soccer is different. Instead of counting down, the clock counts up. And when it gets to 90 minutes, the referee adds stoppage time, extra time, um, to make up for stoppages that happened along the way. So maybe he adds two minutes, three minutes, five minutes of stoppage time, and that's announced, even though it's no longer on the clock. But when that, let's say, five minutes gets done, there's been more stoppages that have happened. The ball got kicked out of bounds, somebody got hurt, this other guy was rolling around the ground for a full minute pretending he's injured trying to waste clock. So everyone in the stadium is looking at the ref. And to my knowledge, this is a situation that's completely unique to soccer. The referee is the only person in the entire stadium who knows when that final whistle is going to blow. So why do I bring this up aside from my personal goal of as many soccer illustrations in sermons as possible? Right? Well, the reason I bring this up is because in many ways, the end of a soccer match is similar to the end of the world. Hear me out. So for the first thing, most of the game has already been played. Right? Like thousands of years of human history have taken place, and there have been lows, like when Satan tempted the entire human race into sin. And there have been highs, like when Jesus died on the cross and paid for every sin and opened wide the gates to eternal life. A lot has happened, but we're way into it. Now it's getting near the end. Another similarity between the end of a soccer match and the end of the world is that by this stage of the game, the players are exhausted. Like everybody's ready for it to be over, for the most part. And I find it fascinating how not only Christians, but totally non-religious people as well, feel fatigued and exhausted by the continuing existence of the human race. Like, you see news about the latest war, you hear news about the latest mass shooting, and you're just like, again and again, we as a human race, because of our sin, are so toxic. We're so self-destructive. And so you see it in, in pop culture, and you see it in media, and you hear scientists talking about it, and there's this collective idea, Christian or not, this world cannot go on forever. Humanity cannot do this for too much longer. How much longer are we going to make it? We're getting near the end. We're tired. And yet, we continue to muddle on because we recognize that while the clock is ticking, there is still precious time to make a difference. So picture a soccer player just, just totally exhausted, like all in, past 90 minutes, completely spent, bent over, hands on knees, just trying to catch a breath. And all of a sudden, the ball comes. And what does the player do? They just immediately forget about it, sprint after the ball, one more time, one last run, 
because as the clock ticks down, there is still time for that one last goal to be scored. In the same way, as the clock is ticking down on our world, you have these, these final last bursts of energy from everybody involved. Um, you have Satan frantically trying to pull one more soul after another away from God before the day that he finally gets condemned to hell and he can't tempt anyone again. Then you have Jesus pulling one soul after another towards God, getting ready for the day when he's going to bring all of his children home to heaven. You have a whole planet full of people who are desperately trying to squeeze as much enjoyment as possible out of life while they've got a chance. You've also got a whole planet full of Christians who are desperately trying to share the gospel with as many other people as they possibly can while they've got a chance. And just like the final moments of a soccer match are sloppy and frantic and exhilarating and, and heartbreaking, so it is in these last days of the world. Like, there is just a lot going on. And only God knows when the final whistle will blow. Right? What does Jesus say? No one knows that day or hour, not the angels in heaven, nor even the Son, but only the Father. So if you can picture this, this is the time period in which we are currently living. You could call it the last days, you could call it the end times, you could call it the closing seconds. Uh, our sermon series calls it the time in between. In between Jesus' first coming to die on the cross and his second coming to take us home to heaven. Whatever you call it, this is the era. And so the questions are, what are we supposed to do in these last days of our world? How are we supposed to think in these last days of our world? What should we be expecting? Right? And those are some of the questions that we'll be asking and answering during this sermon series. Today, <coughs> we start this series with a very comforting thought, and the comforting thought is this. During these final days of the world, God is still extremely active. God is still working very hard. And these are the things that God is working to do. He's working to protect his people, and he's working to preserve his promises. So, our sermon text today comes from Matthew chapter 10. At the time that this text happened, Jesus had yet to die on the cross and rise from the dead, and ascend into heaven. But he knew what was coming. And so as we talked about, what Jesus did is he sent out his 12 disciples. Now we can call them the 12 apostles. He sent them out on basically like a mission trip to give them a taste of what ministry was going to be like after he went back to heaven. And spoiler alert, it wasn't going to be easy. So Jesus starts out, and here's the first thing he tells them as he sends them. I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. It's a little bit intimidating. Um, so who exactly are the wolves? Well, the chief wolf is obviously the devil. Ever since the day that he rebelled against God, he has been trying to pull human beings into his rebellion so that he will have lots of company on the day that he gets condemned to hell. And the devil knows the day that he's going to get condemned to hell is coming soon. You remember what the book of Revelation says about Satan and his mindset? It says he is filled with fury because he knows his time is short. In these last days of our world, the devil is going to do anything he possibly can to oppose the spread of the gospel message. 
So once Jesus did die on the cross, rise from the dead, ascend into heaven, once the disciples did, the apostles did go out to, to you know, spread the church, the first thing they experienced was extremely direct persecution and opposition from the devil. In Jerusalem, the same Jewish leaders who had crucified Jesus now did everything that they possibly could to snuff out the movement that he had started. The book of Acts tells us that a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. So you had intense Jewish persecution of Christians, but then you also had intense Roman persecution of Christians. The Romans were very suspicious of Christianity. It was viewed as unpatriotic to the Roman Empire. And so based on both of these types of persecution, you know, if you became a Christian in the very early church, you might have to pay a heavy price. Maybe your home would get burned down. Maybe your family members would be attacked. Maybe you would be publicly executed or even thrown to the lions. Um, in fact, John is the only apostle who survived to old age in exile, and all the rest of them died at young ages as martyrs. So Jesus knows what's coming. He warns his disciples of these attacks of Satan that are coming. I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes. Be careful, be aware, and also be as innocent as doves. But be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. You'll be hated by everyone because of me. These things were going on in this intense, persecution-filled world where everyone was hunting for the Christians. So Jesus knew that tough, scary times were going to be coming. But during those tough, scary times, what would God be doing? Protecting his people. Preserving his promises. How did God protect his people? Well, Jesus says it in our text. He says, the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. No ifs, ands, or buts. It's a similar thought to the Romans 8 text that we read a couple weeks ago that says, if you have faith in Jesus in your heart, even weak, struggling faith, if you have faith in Jesus in your heart, there is nothing in the entire universe that will be able to separate you from God's love. Because that's how strong Jesus is, and he's connected to you by your faith. <clears throat> and then, in these tough, scary times, God would also preserve his promises so that more people could learn about them. And Jesus promised a very unique way that it was going to happen. He said, when you stand on trial, don't worry about what you're going to say or how to say it, because at that time you will be given what to say. It will not be you speaking, but it will be the Spirit of your Father speaking through it through you. Um, very amazing. And you have examples of that in the book of Acts, where Paul or somebody else is on trial, and they use it as an opportunity to just preach a beautiful sermon about Jesus. Uh, but soon God would do something even more amazing. He would inspire the apostles to write down the New Testament scriptures, providing a wealth of eyewitness information about Jesus' life and a treasure trove of spiritual guidance for generations to come. God did preserve his promises in those early days of persecution. And then the results kind of speak for themselves. Despite the attacks of Satan and his wolves, what happened to the New Testament church? 
Well, it massively grew. It exponentially grew. Within a few hundred years, Christianity had become the official religion of the Roman Empire, despite all the devil's attempts to stop it. So what was happening was this. Like, have you ever had a bonfire in your yard and then it's burning down, it's mostly out, and you have that last log that's still glowing? And so it feels like a good idea to stop on it and just make sure it's completely out? Maybe it's just me that does things like this. But then you realize the log is glowing a little more than you thought. It's a little warmer than you actually thought it was. And so when you stop on it, instead of putting it out, it shoots sparks in every direction. And little leaves start on fire. And you're glad that you have a fire pit. Or you should be using a fire pit. Otherwise, there's a lot more stomping to do. <coughs> so this is what happened when the devil tried to stomp out the church with persecution. And Jesus predicted it in these verses where he said, when you get persecuted in one place, flee to another. And we heard that, right? When the persecution broke out, everybody except the apostles fled. So you try to stomp on Christianity and it spreads elsewhere. You could look at a map. I've seen a time-lapse map of Christian history. And wherever persecution hits, uh, it really causes the church to grow. Because it sends Christians to more places with this amazing message of free forgiveness that everybody in the world needs. And so the devil's stomping of the church through persecution did not work. It only started more gospel fires that the devil himself does not have the ability to put out. So now what? Now what would the devil do? Would he give up? Unfortunately, no. And here is where you have to respect the devil's ingenuity, even though it's so completely evil. Because since it was clearly not working to stomp Christianity out from the outside, the devil completely changed his tactic. He made a smooth pivot, and instead of trying to kill off the church, he's going to feed the church. He's going to lean into the growth of the church. He's going to make the church grow into the biggest organism in the world, but bloated, unhealthy, twisted growth. Growth that is not based on the gospel of Jesus, but growth that is based on money and popularity and politics. And so this is what happened through the years of history, till by the Middle Ages, the Roman Catholic Church had become this massive power structure that was looming over society and intimidating people into giving up their money, their time, their very lives, or anything else that the church demanded. And in order to consolidate its power, the church kept people from reading the Bible which also wasn't hard to do because the Bible was only available in languages like Greek and Latin, which most people didn't speak. So the average person was at the mercy of what they were taught by the church. And what they were taught by the church was the only way to get to heaven, and it's a maybe, but the only way to maybe get to heaven is to do as many good works as possible, say as many prayers as possible, give as much money as possible, and above all, do whatever the church tells you. Without being able to read the Bible for more information, many, many people did not know about the gospel of Jesus and what he did for us. So if you think about it, it's a brilliant strategy, really, by the devil. He's saying, all right, God has opened wide the gates to heaven. All you need to get in is simple faith in Christ. But the devil's saying, if I can keep people from even hearing about Christ, then it's not going to do them any good. Sneaky pivot from Satan. He's now attacking Christianity from inside the church instead of from the outside. But of course, God was working too. 
and we know what God was doing. Protecting his people, preserving his promises. How did God do those things? Well, the Catholic Church had a pretty strong grasp in Rome, but the further you got from Rome, you know, the tougher it was for them to reach you. And so it's no coincidence that God allowed a monk in Germany, way in the north of the empire, to start studying his word and find some of these beautiful gospel truths, like the one that we read in Romans, where it says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but we are justified freely by his grace because of Jesus and not because of our own good works. Martin Luther found this in Germany, conveniently far enough away that he was protected from the reach of the Roman church. And then secondly, God used people like Martin Luther to preserve his promises for others to learn. Again, just conveniently, God had allowed the printing press to recently be invented, a piece of technology which allowed information to spread like never before. And thanks to the printing press, Luther's writings about Jesus' grace started to spread all over Europe. And then pretty soon, Luther and a team of translators put the entire Bible into the common German language so everybody could read about Jesus' grace for themselves. And it was a game changer. All across Europe, people were reading the Bible, leaving the Catholic Church, creating new churches, churches that were focused on God's grace rather than what you have to do. And there was hope, and there was peace, and there was joy in people's hearts like there hadn't been for hundreds of years. God had outmaneuvered Satan once again. So, what would the devil do now? Would he simply give up? Unfortunately not. And once again, we almost have to respect his ingenuity, even though it's so completely evil, because it has clearly not worked to crush Christianity with persecution, because it has clearly not worked to destroy Christianity from the inside. The devil pivots once again and moves towards creating a world where religion in general is just no longer considered to have any value. So I know you historians listening are just like, yes, I love this review, right? 1700s, 1800s, you know what happened. The Enlightenment. This was a time when human reason and human wisdom became valued more than God's reason, God's wisdom. Then, in the 1900s, and you historians are right with me, you're like, I love this stuff. The 1900s was a period of modernism, and this is the time when the thinking was, with our human logic, with our new technologies, we can work together and build the world the way that it should be. And then they had two world wars. And it became clear that something is so deeply broken about human beings that all of our learning and all of our technology is not helping us to fix things. And so now we have slid into the era of postmodernism, which says you can't trust big institutions, you can't trust absolute truth, you certainly can't trust religion or any overriding narrative of anything. All you can trust is the feelings in your heart. You have your truth and I have mine. You make your choices and I make mine. And any claim that there's an overriding God who gets to tell people how things are, that just sounds silly and old-fashioned and ignorant. Now this is sounding familiar. Now we know this world. And if you think about it, it's just another brilliant move by the devil. Because he's thinking God has opened wide the door to heaven. 
Like, all you need to get into heaven is simple faith in Christ. But, if no one believes in heaven, or if no one even thinks about God or spiritual things anymore, then it's not going to do them any good. Another sneaky pivot from Satan. He's still working very hard. But we know who else is working hard. It's God. And we know what he's doing. Protecting his people. Preserving his promises. So God protects his people today. And God promises you his protection. Again, we read those beautiful words from Romans chapter 8. If you are connected to Jesus by faith, even weak, sometimes struggling faith, if you're connected to Jesus, nothing in the entire universe can separate you from God's love. God protects his people still today. But then secondly, God preserves his promises still today so that other people can learn them. Yes, Martin Luther had the printing press, but we have the internet. Uh, yes, Martin Luther translated the Bible into German. Today, the Bible is available in like more than 3,600 different languages. God's word and God's gospel is way more available to way more people today than it has ever been in the history of the world. And you and I are living in this era, and you and I are now a part of this. So I'll close with this. I read, a, I read a really interesting article a couple weeks ago, and the article was talking about what is it like to be a Christian sharing your faith in, in sort of the post-truth era, right? Where, where everyone has their own truth and no one can tell anybody else that they're right or wrong. What does it look like as a Christian to share your faith in this type of a world? Well, on the one hand, in a world like this, you can't really tell anybody else that the things they believe are wrong. However, they also can't tell you that the things you believe are wrong. It's your opinion. And your opinion is the most important respected thing, personal opinion. So in a world like this, we have a tremendous opportunity where if we phrase our faith in Jesus as simply our story, and we say, this is what the Bible means for me. This is what Jesus' resurrection means for me. This is what my faith has done for my life. People listen. People listen to your personal story probably more than they listen to almost anything else. And thus, even in this post-modern world, we have great opportunities to make a big impact on people who are starved for anything deep and transcendent and eternally meaningful. Still today, God protects his people. Still today, God preserves his promises and uses his people to reflect that light so that more and more people can hear it, can see it. So may God bless us as we live for him in these final days, the time in between. May he use us to share the beautiful news of his grace with many more people until the day when the final whistle does blow and God finally brings all of his children home to heaven. May God grant that to each one of us for Jesus' sake. Amen. <coughs> and now the peace of God which passes all understanding will guard and keep your hearts and your minds through faith in Christ Jesus your Savior.